Hello, I'm Sam. Hi, I'm Tim. And welcome to the Classical Music Pod on this Bach's 334th birthday. We've got Wales's greatest ever composer. Possibly the worst Welsh accent of all time. William Shatner's spoken word skills. And a comprehensive contrapuntal list of all Bach's children. And finally, we interview the creators of Handel Remixed. Let's get on with the pod. One of the unexpected results of the ongoing Brexit machinations was that last Saturday evening, British soprano Anna Patelong had to change her dress. Mm. She was performing at the Royal Albert Hall's Classical Spectacular and was sporting an EU-themed dress. The show's producers asked her to wear something less open to misrepresentation for the following night's performance. Raymond Gubby, the uh, company who were putting on the concert, told the BBC that they had received a complaint from a member of the public, but stressed that the main reason for their decision was, in fact, because they preferred the red gown Patalong had worn for the previous two evenings. This, they said, was more appropriate attire for a classical concert. Yeah, so Benedict Nelson, who's Anna's husband, who's a baritone, took to Twitter in fury <laughs> and sparked this big debate. And it indeed throws up a number of interesting double standards from not just the Royal Albert Hall, but a few other artistic yeah. institutions. Cast your mind back to the 2017 last night of the proms, when Flags at the Proms campaigner Clive Lewis was ejected three times for handing out EU flags to audience members. Poor Clive. Three Clive, times. Three times. And then, apparently, last week, a man was ejected from the Royal Opera House for wearing a pro-EU T-shirt, and one of Benedict Nelson's friends, Robert Phillips, revealed in a tweet that he had been refused entry to the National Gallery's Cafe for brandishing an EU flag. What's different about this is that this restriction has been placed not on an audience member, but on a performer. And it's been authorised in spite of the myriad precedents for on-stage activism at the Royal Upper Hall. Think about Rostropovich in 1968, after the Czechs were being invaded by Russians. He held the score to Dvorak's cello concerto above his head as a symbol of brotherhood with Mm. the Czechs. Igor Levitt in 2017 Proms again. He played Ode to Joy with an EU badge. Baron Boim gave a speech uh, in the same concert series after yeah. performing with the orchestra Staatskapel Berlin, warning against the dangers of isolationist tendencies. Mm. So why should Patalon be censored when Rostropovich and Baron Boim remain unchallenged? Of course, you could argue that patrons of venues like the Royal Albert Hall are there to appreciate the art, not the activism, but... That would be this, silly. That would be silly, this <laughs> argument. It, it fails... You're failing to recognise art's role as a reflection of the society in which it was created, essentially. And the perennial presence of dissent in so many of its manifestations. Just look at the Royal Opera House's upcoming production of The Marriage of Figaro, which is an opera based on a play that was once banned for a subversive subtext. So to deny a musician a platform from which to protest Brexit feels especially cruel when you consider how heavily they rely on freedom of movement. And it actually highlights highlights an irony in this whole drama mm. is that by censoring Patalong, he's built a career upon experiences and expertise gained performing across multiple EU member states. Raymond Gubby have unwittingly expedited the, um, the reduction in opportunities given two burgeoning UK musicians and they sort of thus draining the well of homegrown talent from which they can draw. Yeah. Only this week, Yo-Yo Ma said, the age for art for art's sake is over. We have to interact with society. Mm, exactly. That's a 
a precedent that's been around for literally hundreds of years. Socrates said uh, as if poetry and music were um, only play and no harm at all. Some wise people who've managed to make the connection between the arts and politics are Edinburgh International Arts Festival, who have just announced their lineup for this summer. They are going to be tackling themes of gender, politics, racism, masculinity and homophobia in a response to the political challenges all around the world. Yes, and Sir John Elliot Gardner will be conducting two performances of Bernstein's West Side Story with the Scottish Chamber Orchestra. Which initially sounds really stupid because he mostly does early music and West Side Story is, of course, Bernstein's 20th century masterpiece. But I think maybe it will work because Bach's all dance and West Side Story is, you know, semi-ballet. We'll have to wait and see. Spare a thought for Alex Mugnaioni this week, the star of the UK tour of Captain Crowley's Mandolin, who left his 129-year-old instrument on the 1834 southeastern from London Bridge to Sidcup. Oh, you'd feel very stupid, wouldn't you? In all seriousness, if anybody sees it, pop him a message. Just a tiny on. little mandolin case. <laughs> Speaking of instruments you won't hear, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra are still on strike. They have delivered a letter in this, the fourth week of their strike. It says, let us be clear, this is not just about us. With many of the musicians already vested, our concern is truly about the future of the orchestra. One of the things that they pick out is that only a third of the revenue of the orchestra is going on the musicians' pay, and the rest is going on administrative marketing, building, and other expenses. This is despite the ever-ballooning costs of tickets and increasing donations and endowments towards the orchestra. Mm. Um, they also say that it's a bit worrying that the Board of Trustees feels a bigger obligation to the bond holders of a debt that they incurred back in the 90s, which I didn't know about. They actually borrowed $145 million, and they're still paying $5 million of interest on those payments. So that, in part, explains why the orchestra is so hard up at the moment and the reasons behind this blocking of their mm. pension plan. You can understand why the orchestra are frustrated that they're the ones who are producing the you know the product. They're everyone else's uh, parasite, if you like, on their creativity. You're administrating an orchestra. You are marketing an orchestra who play concerts. Mm. Without them, it, the whole thing would fall apart. Speaking of things falling apart. There's been more drama at the Royal Academy of Music. Oh, no. A student is suing a former professor at the Royal Academy. She uh, thought that she was selling her family heirloom, a Landolfi violin, to her teacher for £40,000, £26,000 in cash, plus a violin worth what she thought was £14,000. It's been later transpired that the substitute violin may only have been worth £1,500. So Mm. she's quite a long way short there. Yeah, so Marinkovic, who is the professor, is said to be teaching in China at the moment, but he's actually still listed as Royal Academy staff. Yeah, so please watch out if you're a young violinist and uh, someone offers you a very good deal. Mm. A quick update on James Levine's ongoing dispute with the New York Met. The New York Supreme Court Justice Andrea Masley dismissed all but one of his defamation claims. The parties continue to contest a $5.8 million breach of a contract. Our final bit of news is that the Minnesota Orchestra will be offering a music mindfulness program as part of their new season, which will expand upon the yoga classes they're already doing and will present guided meditation sessions on stage with an orchestra musician or small ensemble. Hmm. Sounds lovely. I could take a bit of that. And that wonderful birthday fugue has been put together by Giovanni Dettori. Thank you to him for letting us use that. 
You know what there isn't, Tim? A contrapuntal, comprehensive list of all of Bach's children. Johann Christoph Bach, Wilhelm Friedman Bach, Kalte Liebemann, Joel Bach, Maria Sophia Bach, Gottfried Heilrich Bach, We've had a letter, another one, Woo! from Tim Price in Wiltshire. He says, Dear Sam and Tim, I thought I would take you at your podcast word and get in touch, not least to tell you how much I am enjoying your podcast. He goes on to say, I really enjoyed the interview with Nicholas Mulroney. I think he must mean Mulroy or uh, you've been sleep interviewing pastors. Mm. Uh, a man whom I greatly admire. If you hadn't heard it, I can thoroughly recommend John Butt's interpretation of the Bach St. John Passion. Thinking of the Bach Passions, may I suggest, since it is of course Lent, you deploy your forensic musicological skills on one of those works. Wicked. Well, I'll do some analysis. Analysis. The St. John Passion is an amazing piece, and it's one that people go to repeatedly for both musical and religious reasons. That familiarity, though, can stop us from taking in how unusual a lot of Bach's compositional decisions are. Hopefully by popping the lid on the shortest aria from the St. John Passion, Ach mein Sinn, demonstrating what the expectation might be and showing how Bach often went diametrically against it, I can convince everyone that Bach was the greatest musical rebel of his age. The St. John Passion tells the Easter story from the perspective of St. John's Gospel. Archmind Sin comes just as Peter has repeated his denial of knowing Jesus, and this tenor aria is a dwelling on that guilt. O oh my conscience, where will you flee at last? Where will I find my refreshment? It's a minor chacon, a slow, three-time dance-like style associated with grief that leans on the second beat of the bar. Here's a bit of it. Passion plays were a big part of the Lutheran tradition in Germany, as was the setting of religious texts. In the generation before Bach, there was a well-respected composer and conductor called Johann Matheson. He did lots of innovative things, like introduce women singers into Germany's chapels and pioneer music as a university subject. He wrote a widely adopted set of rules for setting text to music. These included vocal melodies being of greater importance than instrumental ones, and observing the metre and breaths of poetry. Only having breaks in the melody where there are breaks in the poetry. Listen here to William Shatner performing a spoken word version of Elton John's Rocket Man to illustrate the breaking of all of Matheson's rules. We have lines running from one into the next and emphases in completely unexpected places. And I think it's going to be a long, long time to touch down brings me back again to find I'm not the man they think I am back home. Oh, no, 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 I'm a rocket man. Back to Bach, our 17th century rebel. In the first line, he breaks Matheson's rules about emphasis. 
The poem's meter is long, short, long. Obeying the rules, it should sound like this. But old Johann Sebastian changes the emphasis to this. It makes the text feel authored and personal. Peter's sin of turning away from Jesus becomes our sin in this version. Worse yet, Bach breaks the rules about melodic hierarchy. The instruments overwhelm the voice, interrupting like this. Perhaps Bach's greatest crime against Matheson is that we lose the structure of the original poem due to the aria being in a kind of ritonello form. Ritonello, literally to return, has a key mantra that keeps coming back and little episodes in between. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech is in ritonello form. He says, I have a dream. And then goes on to talk about his children not being judged by the colour of their skin. Then he returns to I Have a Dream, talks about Alabama children joining hands as brothers and sisters, returns to I Have a Dream, etc. This is a great structure for developing and meditating on one central theme. However, it's not how the poem is written. In direct opposition to Matheson's prevailing wisdom, Bach tears it up and we hear some lines repeatedly, others out of order. It creates a sensation of Peter's obsession with his own sin. It's psychologically powerful and it's only the start of how Bach gets this across. Another example of Ritonello form is the Naughties TV show You've Been Framed. You have the studio Ritonello, an episodic clip of someone's trousers falling down accompanied by a swanny whistle, and then a return to the studio. We can clearly tell the difference between the return, the studio, and the episode. Rebel Bark, though, is making an aria about a sense of inescapable culpability. He doesn't stick to the Ritonello rules, and in fact every single bar of episodic music can be traced back to the very opening. The Ritonello is the musical manifestation of the guilt Peter feels and is obsessed with, and we hear it even before the singer has opened his mouth. Here's the instrumental introduction. It's a complete version of the returning Ritonello, the studio or I Have a Dream section. And here is the most distant departure in the aria, the episode in the major where the text becomes most hopeful. Those same accompanying patterns are still there. Bach has created a programme of You've Been Framed out of clips of gaffes in the You've Been Framed studio. It's all self-referential. Because Peter can't escape his guilt, Bach doesn't let the episodes escape the Ritonello. We struggle to see where the episodes begin and the all-pervading Ritonello ends. In our first episode, I talked a bit about how Handel, who was born the same year as Bach, depicted text in quite a transparent way, called word painting, the text eternal lasting for a long time. This is the kind of setting that Mr Matheson and his rules would have loved. Bach, though, rebels against this kind of surface interaction with the text, by disposing with the poetic rules, composing against the metre and the structure of the poem, 
having instrumental musical material dominate the voice and even breaking all the conventions of the ritonello form. But in this rebellion, Bach stays focused on the spirit, the heart of the theology. I find when listening to Bach it can be difficult to pinpoint why it feels so profoundly meaningful. Why is it such a powerful piece for Tim Price and Wiltshire? Personally, I think it's because Bach manages to create structures like this that articulate the emotions of a character in a way that is ineffable, inarticulable in any language other than music. The words aren't painted, they're sort of dissolved into the very foundations, the concept stage of the music. We are then able to live through those emotions together in time as an audience, and that can be an enormously powerful shared moment. He's a bad boy rebel, Arbach, and by breaking all the rules he creates models for every other composer to aspire to. Composer Fact File, Grace Williams. Born Barry, South Wales in 1906, the daughter of teachers. Growing up, she played the violin in a trio with her brother Glyn, a cellist, and her father, a pianist. In 1923, she won the Morthid Owen Scholarship to Cardiff University. Went on to study with Ralph Vaughan Williams at the Royal College of Music in London. Became the first British woman to score a feature film with Blue Scar in 1949. Wrote over 90 works for choir and over 30 for orchestra. Her favourite instrument was the trumpet. Marked several of her manuscripts as not worth performing. In 1967, she turned down an OBE. She said... If only I had no desire to write seriously, I should be a much happier person. was the chamber music of Grace Williams being performed by the Lumber Chamber on <laughs> <laughs> The Lower Lumber Chamber Ensemble? The Lumberjacks of London. <laughs> the London Chamber Ensemble, directed by their lead violinist Madeline Mitchell. It's just been released on Naxos. Sam, you've listened to this CD. What did you think? It's a really eclectic selection of pieces ranging from the opening, a violin sonata, to a suite for nine instruments, right down to a duet for clarinet and oboe, even a piece for just the left hand of the piano. They're programmed here in chronological order, starting with the Violin Sonata, written in 1930, and culminating with the Rondo for Dancing in 1972. Whilst this gives all of us who weren't that familiar with Williams's work an overview, it doesn't actually make for the most linear listening experience. The Violin Sonata opens in quite a sort of pedestrian fashion, and the first movement feels like the wrong end of Vaughan Williams, that sort of cowpat music. Okay, so it hasn't really been put together with that much thought, would you say? Oh, I think or... it's been thought about, but it's it's an artefact. Is it kind of like a greatest hits? Yeah. No. It's not so much like a greatest hits as a sort of anthology, almost like a textbook mm. of her work. 
and that actually doesn't make for the most rewarding listen through, despite there being some very good music played very well on this disc. The second movement of the violin sonata I like quite a lot more. It's the second track on the CD, and it feels like a sort of lark that didn't quite ascend as high. B-team roster Vaughan Williams. It's very pleasing. Well, she studied under Vaughan Williams. She she? did, and um, Madeline Mitchell brings out all the best elements of this piece. I think she plays it immaculately with very full and hearty tone, almost cello-like in some places. It's so round. And it's perfectly nice and sort of idyllic music. For me, I think they could have just opened with one of the other works, gone out of chronological order, and it would have made for a much greater impact at the start of a CD. Especially if you're trying to be evangelical about a lesser-known composer. Putting out a work that isn't that convincing at the start may be a misstep. Having said that, from the next track, the fourth track on the CD, the first one, the sextet, what we heard earlier, it's a sextet for oboe, trumpet and piano quartet. It's just different gravy. As soon as I started listening to that, I was like, wow, really got something on our hands here. It builds into a sort of swashbuckling dance with real brio, and it deploys some great mystery sounds, those sort of like, what instrument is that thing? It's like in the beginning of uh, Schubert Unfinished Symphony where you get flute and oboe, and if they balance really well, they create sort of this flobo sound. But they are traditionally two instruments that you're not supposed to put together, am I correct? Yeah. And Says you, Norman Del Mar in his oh, sort of orchestration book. Yeah, but putting them together, you can kind of create this eerie mystery sound where you can't work out what you're hearing. This has oboe and trumpet, or trobo? Trobo, yep. Trobopet. That's what they call trobridge. Wiltshire town. Informative and entertaining. Mm. Um, so the sextet has some really wicked mystery sounds in that maybe you won't have heard elsewhere. And the London Chamber Ensemble will really bring out all those different colours to maximum effect. It's also in this sextet that I think we hear her individual compositional voice. She's not just imitating her teachers, Vaughan Williams, etc. It sounds much more like the inside of my head. It's sort of ADHD music. It sort of changes every eight bars into something different. Kind of like um, Mozart topics. You get like a, a horn kind of call moment and then you'll get something that deliberately evokes a dance and then you'll switch to something else. And what's really impressive about the playing and the composition, it doesn't just feel like we're chopping Mm. and changing. It's a conversation of ideas rather than just random words. One association I hadn't really expected to uh, bring with Welshwoman Williams was Gamelan. Where does the Gamelan appear? (laughs) So it's not not a direct influence, I don't think. Like, she hasn't gone and listened to Gamelan. But she writes quite a lot of pentatonic-y melodies, kind of like Vaughan Williams. And then she has these really dense structures, particularly in the Suite for Nine Instruments, where you kind of get these heterophonic textures of people doing similar things and then decorating them differently. Do you think that's come from someone um, like Debussy, perhaps, or someone who was directly influenced by Gamelan? Or perhaps. Indirectly. I haven't really thought about the lineage of the idea, but yeah. just that when you hear it, it kind of evokes that. And almost no other British composer that I'm aware of has that in their arsenal. No. I think she's really bringing something um, well, certainly individual Ralph there. Certainly Williams didn't. No, well, exactly. I think that that's why it feels more individually her. Yeah. And the second movement of the Suite for Nine Instruments is laser-focused composing, almost Walton-esque, focusing on one interval, the augmented fourth. La, da, da. That's the one. And it just it ekes away at you. And out of almost no material, she generates this thrilling narrative. And you can totally see why she ended up writing film scores. It does feel like we're hearing a really outstanding team in the London Chamber Ensemble. They're a sort of group of mates, as far as I can tell. But they're a really all-star cast. You've got David Owen Norris playing the David piano. David Owen Norris on the CD. Yeah. Andrew Sparling is playing the clarinet, who we saw do F.E.F. Demise music as part of Lontano. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember. And he's Well, just... Madeline Mitchell was there as well. Was she playing? She was playing, yeah. Ah, well, I mean, it's that crowd. Yeah. And they just, they're all astoundingly good. They all really interpret these pieces. 
think particularly the smaller ones, the oboe and clarinet duet, where the sort of clarinet plays an accompaniment to a harp part and the oboe is the lyrical instrument, and then um, the left-handed piano. I feel like they've been given as much interpretational, uh, expressive energy from the performers as those pieces could possibly sustain. The one that doesn't quite hold up is the rondo, the rondo for dancing, which is a three-part string texture, and it just feels like a sort of grade six duet piece. And that finishes the CD, is it? Yeah. It's interesting that they've chosen to end and begin with the weakest items. Well, yeah, I think I mean, that's why they've just put them in chronological order. Mm. And it gives you an overview. It gives you an impression of that composer's journey. But actually, in terms of creating a satisfying program, something that is pleasing to sit down and listen to rather than an artifact to put on a shelf... I think uh, it doesn't quite work in that sense. It's some really top music being played to a phenomenally high standard in this CD. I think I would just put the tracks in a different order. Grace Williams is often referred to as Wales's best woman composer. And mm, that's nice and patronising. It, it is nice and patronising. And I was looking at the list of other Welsh composers, and you've got, you know, Carl Jenkins and Alan Hodinot, who write sort of, you know, more cowpat music. This CD makes quite a convincing case that Grace Williams is just Wales's best composer. That was a reimagined version of Handel's Dixit Dominus. Tim, you met one of the people who was responsible for it. I did. I spoke to Oscar McCarthy, who's one of the directors of Festival Voices, who are putting on a concert as part of the London Handel Festival, mm-hmm. which is going on at the moment, over in the Bussy Building. They're Great. going to be doing reinterpretations, electronic reinterpretations of Handel's music. So I went and spoke to him about the upcoming concert, what other projects Festival Voices have been involved with, and what they're going to be doing in the future. So my name is uh, Oscar McCarthy. I'm one of the company directors with Festival Voices, um, a company that myself, Gregory Batzler and Louis Hartshorn founded um, in 2016 to do new things with choral music. So our focus is to work collaboratively with different art forms on every project that we do. So far that's included collaborations with electronic music, mime, lighting design um, and dance. 
and we have um, various projects um, on the go as well. Where did you guys meet? Were you uni together or college? So I met Greg um, when we both worked at the National Portrait Gallery. Uh, he was the music director for the choir and residence there. I'm a, I'm a singer, yeah. should have said. And Festival Voices has in, in some ways grown out of what that choir was doing. The Portrait Choir went from 2013 to 2017 and then it, um, it, it, it stopped. But Festival Voices mm. has carried on the idea of doing choral music in new ways, in new places. Mm. We think that choral music will continue to have an incredible hold over the cultural scene in the UK, but there are more than enough um, ensembles doing it in a certain way. There's nothing wrong with that, it has its place, but we saw an opportunity to put it into new places and show it to new people, yeah. and, and we hope that there'll be a, an opportunity to cross-pollinate between um, adherents of different art forms. So people who are really into dance but might not know much about choral music come and see something like the show we did at um, Wilderness Festival last summer and which we'll be um, doing again this autumn which was Monteverdi and dance and you might be sat next to somebody at one of our gigs and go oh so are you what, what, what's brought you here and they said oh I'm, I'm, I'm a mate of one of the dancers what's brought you here I'm a mate of one of the singers mm. then a conversation starts what was the mime thing so the mime thing so I um, th nearly three years ago went and did some training um, at uh, a mime school in Paris and met an incredible um, performer mm. who I invited back a year later to do some mimetic movement to um, a Five Songs of Ariel. Mm. So we, we sang them, kind of, I suppose, straight through and um, we had someone read in some of Prospero's words and then Jason Rib, who was the, the, the mime artist, responded to what we were saying and the, the atmosphere around him and took on the character of Ariel reacting to, to the music and the words. Did you find that that particular fusion or pairing felt was it natural? Did it did it come together naturally? Or we have found that certainly having a having a movement element to our shows has been very successful. So both that and the the dance show that we did at Wilderness is quite a natural pairing, I suppose. That show that we did with Mime was at the Ugly Duck Warehouse in near London Bridge mm. uh, in late November in a very very cold unheated warehouse space, and it had just a, the, like a, an amazing atmosphere. Quite, um, quite austere, quite, quite spooky almost. But that was a show that we also did with, with um, lighting design and then did um, our version of Dido Aeneas, which is completely remixed with electronics in the second half. Have you done anything that hasn't necessarily fused naturally or that you felt that has felt a bit contrived even? Sometimes, yeah. Or rather I could say that we've done things that we haven't, that haven't quite pushed as far as we would want them to perhaps. Mm. So we will revisit these collaborations again and again in the future and build on what we've learned from the past. For example, lighting design, you can, you can put some lights with some music, you can put some dance with some music, but actually really investigating how they inform uh, each other is, I think, the, is the challenge each time we visit, revisit yeah. these sorts of collaborations. Yeah. This thing we're doing at um, the Bussy Building is the second collaboration that we will have done with electronic mm. music. So this is part of the Handel Festival, yeah. right? London Handel Festival. Yeah. Can you tell us any more about that? So we're, as, as you say, we're part of the London Handel Festival, which is a well-established three-week-long, I think, festival mm. of, of Handel's music around London. And we are doing a night called Handel Remixed, the centre point of which is a new version of Dixit Dominus, rescored with electronics. And the first half features a, a couple of other bits of Handel, also with some rescoring and other bits of writing rescored for just, just a four-part choir and also some string ensemble music. As we say, the, cent the centre point is the centrepiece, rather not centre point. The centrepiece is this Dixit Dominus, I can tell I'm a Londoner, is this Dixit Dominus 
for which we've collaborated with Nico Bentley, who's a music producer, and The Pencil Collective, who take classical music and mix it with electronics. So um, that's, we think, is a natural fit for a club setting. Mm -hmm. I think with these sorts of nights, we really want people to come to them and just feel like they've just had a good time, really. Um, and it's, it, it sounds that sounds like an obvious thing to say, really, when you're putting on an event, but we don't want a lot of chin stroking, really. Yeah, yeah. We, we want beard stroking. Yeah, well, <laughs> or beard stroking exactly in Beckham. We want people to feel like they can have a drink, meet some new people, mm. listen to some really quality music done in interesting ways. Mm. So we're re we're returning to doing this electronic um, collaboration um, because we re baroque music is dance music and processing it and putting contemporary rhythmic impulses through it just seems to be like a really really satisfying combination mm. and seeing and seeing audiences i mean we 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 so we did this this process with died on aeneas and we took that to latitude and wilderness and then as i say to the ugly dark and seeing audiences start to start to move to it yeah. thinking that's that's what purcell's audience might yeah. have done when they're hearing that ritonelle or that saraband and it's really satisfying yeah, to see God. What, what kind of audiences we because i suppose the latitudes and the wilderness you get you'll get a lot of a lot of people going won't necessarily be there for Baroque reinterpretations, I mm. suppose. But do, do you get a lot of people that that look slightly lost coming in, <laughs> but actually end up loving it? Or is it people that seek you out because they know they see it on the programme? Or A bit of both. Honestly, because we're, we're still a young company, we do have quite a few people stumble across us. Mm. But we returned to Wilderness again this year and had people who had seen us in 2017. Yeah. Sorry, we returned in 2018 and had people who'd seen yeah. us in 2017. Um, so they seem to enjoy themselves the first time, so that's a good sign. One hope that we have by getting this, um, this slot at the Handel Festival is that the festival's traditional, if I can use that, that word, audience, might seek out our gig and go, hmm, this is a sound world that I haven't yeah. experienced before, and then that might lead them to uh, look into more electronic music. But yeah. also the flip side works, people who look up um, what's not the bossy building, they might be browsing resident advisor and go, oh, there's this thing with, mm. with this um, electronic music producer and DJ. I might go and see that. And, oh, this is Handel. Okay, I, I know who Handel is, but I think I'm going to go and listen to some more Handel now. Yeah. Well, it's this cross-pollination again, isn't yeah. it? It's, yeah, it's powerful. So what have you got coming up? What's, what's in store? So I think one of the things that Festival Voices um, needs to uh, maintain a reputation for is, is working with contemporary music. Mm. contemporary choral music and there is quite a lot of it that doesn't really stir the senses but there is some which is really evocative and really powerful and really good and I have had this idea of combining experimental food uh, with experimental choral music um, potentially based around the idea of four elements earth, air, fire, water That's yes um, so various f food small plates sharing plateaus cooked in various ways like that with choral music that responds to that, right. and treating and treating it uh, again, as I was mentioning before, I'm I'm very into immersive events. Louis um, Louis Hartshorn is one of the producers behind the Gatsby um, immersive show in London at the moment. So we have we have a desire to bring some of that into Festival Voices as well. Mm. And coming back to this idea about cross pollination, there's there's it's a cliche to say, but there's no better way of getting people chatting than giving them a, a, a nice tasty bowl of food. Mm and then um, integrate choral music with that mm. 
Uh, so, I mean, it's very much an idea in gestation. And the more that we've thought about it, the, the, the bigger it's got. So we think we're onto something. We just have to exactly define what it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. It, it takes some inspiration from, from sort of kind of supper club style events. Mm-hmm. Um, but to, to, to really focus in on, on one form of collaboration, I think, is what will make it most successful. Um, supper clubs are fantastic for, particularly the kind of immersive theatrical supper clubs. They have a large amount of stuff going on, and that can be really exciting. Um, but for our purposes, I think really in- investigating how music can inform food and it vice hurts, versa. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Rather I mean, than distract from. Yeah, I mean, there's there's there are, there's a there's a research project in here, and research has been done on this on how, on how yeah your auditory um, senses. Can affect what you're eating and, and mm. how, how your taste can affect what you're listening to. Yeah. We will be looking to do something with spoken word as well and actors. Um, this is something that we used to do at the Portrait Choir um, quite a bit. We got actors to come in and do readings that that responded to what we were doing, which was in response to one of the exhibitions at the gallery. And we have found that that works really quite well at um, festival spaces, for example, because they can be very portable. I, I would really like to do something that was very story-led and you could take a, like quite a, a small ensemble of singers around a, a festival environment um, and create a narrative to hook an audience in with. Mm. Um, those are some, those are some yeah. early stages ideas. That's pretty exciting. I'm still, I'm intrigued about this. What's coming up? Coming up this week, Wednesday the 3rd, <laughs> Ian Bell's Jack the Ripper, The Woman of Whitechapel, from the ENO at the Coliseum and conducted by Martin Brabens. Now this is interesting. It is interesting. Really, so he told The Guardian in an interview, he found it beyond injustice that these women were defined solely by the way they died, while their mm. killer was elevated to mythology. And he has written an opera which basically attempts to address, redress this balance. So Jack isn't on stage at all, isn't a character, and mm. the focus is on the community that he destroyed and the lives of the women he killed instead. Now, this has also come at a time when Hallie Rubenhold's The Five, the book, uh, has been released in the last couple of months, oh, I right. think, which tells the story of the lives of the women that he killed mm. as well. And it's happening on the anniversary of the first murder in 1888 of Emma Smith. So that's Wednesday the 3rd. On Thursday the 4th, John Wilson is up with the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra at Birmingham City Hall performing Copeland's Appalachian Spring, um, Barber's Violin Concerto, a bit of Vaughan Williams. That's right up my street. Yeah, I mean, he is such a fantastic conductor and he will get the best sound out of that orchestra. He, in fact, he's so good they're doing it twice. On the Saturday they're doing it at Symphony Hall, uh, just swapping in a bit of Belshazzar's Feast for an mm. even bigger night out. And Thursday the 4th is also the anniversary of when the Beatles held the top five positions in the Billboard Hot 100 pop chart in 1964. Friday the 5th at the King's Place. They're doing so much cool stuff at the yeah, King's Place. Yeah, place to It's be. the UK premiere of Brooklyn-based composer Missy Mazzoli's double bass concerto called Dark with Excessive Bright which is actually a reference to Milton's Paradise Lost. Ooh, very learned. Yeah, thank you. And that's the Aurora, Aurora Orchestra with Benjamin Griffiths on double bass. And this is a really cool sounding piece. It was actually written for the principal double bass player at the Australian Chamber Orchestra, mm-hmm. I believe. 
And his double bass is like 500 years old. Amazing. So it's written for this specific instrument. It's also the anniversary of the birth of Austrian conductor and great hairdo Herbert von Karajan. He shares a birthday with Pharrell Williams, Caitlin Moran, Anthony Horowitz and Lily James. I think that's the best birthday dinner party we've we've come up with so far. Certainly. Let's keep looking. Yeah. Saturday the 6th, Barbican, Nadia and Lily Boulanger, total immersion day with the BBC Singers and the BBC Symphony Orchestra. I'm going to be there, so if you are around and you see me, say hello. Also, the anniversary of the 1974 spectacular victory by ABBA in the Eurovision Song Contest, where they sang Waterloo. Mm, finally, Sunday the 7th is the anniversary of the first performance of Beethoven's Third Symphony, the Eroica, in Vienna. For all those uh, hopeful composers out there who are getting bad reviews, do bear in mind that reviews at the time criticised the endless duration of this longest and perhaps most difficult of all symphonies, which exhausts even connoisseurs and becomes unbearable for the mere amateur. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Do all the normal like and subscribe stuff and find us at, at Classical Pod. Uh, but a couple of thank yous now. First to my mum. Thank you for all of your support on Mother's Day. It is Mother's Day. Thank you to my mum, who is in part responsible for our music education, Tim. Mm, indeed. And thank you to Tim Price for his lovely letter. Lovely letter. I'd like to encourage any other listeners who want to get in touch to yeah. follow suit. Big thank you to Rick Klein. Who, yeah, great name. Great name. Very satisfying to say. Rick Klein. Rick Klein. Uh, who lent us the William Shatner clip uh, from the Chicago Museum of Television. And of course, thank you to Martin from Naxos, as ever, being a real crusader in the cause of the classical music pod, supplying us with wonderful clips of music from his collection. Yeah, and just a quick question. Which is also fun to say. Quick question for our listeners out there. Rick was, Klein. Rick Klein's quick question. Uh, we were in the park the other day and there were some bagpipes playing and I just don't understand how they are so loud. Like Acoustically, they haven't got a big bell. They, um, you know, it's not a massive drum. There's no, there's nothing resonating. I understand, like, I process sound through a big resonating space equals mm. lots of sound. Why are bagpipes so loud? If you know this... Please tell us. Yeah, I'm going to ask Rick Klein. And I think it's going to be a long, long time. The touchdown brings me back again to find I'm not the man they think I am back home. Oh, no, no, no. I'm a rocket man. <laughs> <laughs>